Hi, my name is Jonathan. I am one of the pastors here at Heights, and we're so glad that you found us online. You know, at Heights, it is our desire to love and lead all people to a new life with Christ. And one of the ways that we strive to do that is by posting weekly content at all of the places, on Facebook and on YouTube, on Instagram. We even have our own website where we're constantly posting things as well. If you're checking us out for the first time, you can go to heightschurch.org connect and let us know that you found us. And once again, we're so glad that you're here. Amen. I'm going to invite you today, if you have a Bible with you, uh, one to turn on, one to open up. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. And so we are in Mark chapter 8 uh, this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 31 here in a moment in Mark chapter 8. We're continuing just moving through Mark's gospel, a sermon at a time, a chapter at a time. Uh, so Mark chapter 16, we will land right on Easter morning. So you can kind of get a feel for how close Easter is now. Uh, and so be thinking Easter is going to be right around the corner. So if you're looking for something to read in your Bible, I encourage you to uh, just read through Mark's gospel with us. And uh, if you read even a chapter a day, you're going to get through it a couple of times, uh, which is perfectly okay. That'll help you retain uh, more of the Bible as you're reading it over and over. When you think about Jesus, what you think about Jesus will fundamentally define who you are. You know, what you think about Jesus is going to determine how you worship Jesus, how you serve Jesus, and how you live for Jesus, okay? So what you think about him is going to determine how you worship him, how you live for him, how you serve him. Now, there's a lot of people that want to say, well, you know, I, I admire Jesus, right? I mean, I, I admire him. He was, he's, seems like a good guy. He seems like a great moral teacher. He did a lot of really good things for people. But I want to make me admire Jesus from a distant, you know, that, you know he's, he's, he's okay over there. And a lot of folks would say, you know, as a Christian, I just kind of admire Jesus from, a, from afar. I, I don't want to get too serious about this. I don't really want to meddle in this. Certainly don't want Jesus meddling in my own life. I mean, so I'm just going to, I'm going to call myself a Christian, but I'm going I'm to keep him at arm's length. You know, what Christ is doing here in the flow of Mark's gospel that Mark's starting to show you is you've seen, uh, as you've been reading through this and, and we've been moving through this, you've been seeing the power and the authority of Christ. That's what Mark displays for you. There's not a lot of long teaching in Mark's gospel. Uh, there's not like Matthew where, you know, three chapters is just one sermon, right? I mean, Mark's gospel is bang, 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 bang. It's action, action, action. I mean, he's calming storms, casting out demons, healing people left and right. That's why I love Mark's gospel because my attention span sometimes when I'm reading is like, oh, this is really cool. Squirrel, right? I mean, you know, like anybody else in there? Like, that's me. But what you're going to find in Mark's gospel, if you've been reading through this, is chapters 8, 9, and 10 are the lengthiest parts of Jesus' teaching. And what he's going to do in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is really now define and nail down, here's what it means to follow me. Here's what a disciple is. And so today, if you say, hey, you know what? I'm a Christian. I, I follow Jesus. I'm a disciple. What, what would you say? What, what does that look like? You know, there, there's probably a time in your life, for some of you, uh, it was long ago, because you've been married for more than five minutes. But when you were dating somebody, there was a time where you had to say to that person, let's define out this relationship, right? It's called DTR. Like, you got to DTR this thing. Are we, are we just, like, exclusively dating each other? Or are we just friends? Are we going to get married? Like, you, you had to DTR that relationship. 
Jesus in chapters 8 through 10 says, all right, you want to follow me? Let's DTR, all right? I'm going to define what the relationship looks like. So Jesus is going to show you Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, uh, what a disciple looks like. Now, let me show you the first part. A disciple of Jesus does not get in the way of Jesus, all right? A disciple of Christ does not get in the way of Jesus. Now, what's going to happen in verses 31 through 33 is Christ, for the first time, is going to tell these guys, I'm about to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to arrest me. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. Don't worry. Three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. So these guys have been following Christ for you know over a year now easily, and this is the first time he has said those words. Pick up in verse 31. He says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, now notice this next word, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. All right, so notice verse 31. He says, for the first time, now he's going to do this three times, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. This is the first time he says it. The Son of Man must suffer many things. It was always God's design to have a suffering Messiah. I mean, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, he's going to bruise your heel. You're going to crush his head. All from the beginning, all throughout the Old Testament, all the prophets kept pointing you to a suffering Messiah. And if you think about the sufferings of Christ, he suffered a lot of things. It's verse 31, he says, hey, he's going to suffer many things. He suffered rejection by his family for a time. For a time, his family didn't believe in him, thought he was crazy, tried to pull him off the mission field. He suffered betrayal from a friend by the name of Judas. He suffered the loss of friends and family members who died. He suffered death physically. So you have a Messiah in Jesus. You have a Christ, you as a Savior, who identifies with you on all kinds of levels of suffering. This is not a God that you worship that's distant, that's far away, that doesn't know you doesn't know your pain. He suffered many things. Now, the culmination of his suffering is the cross. Culmination of all that suffering is when he died on a cross and he took all our sin upon himself. That's the height of all that suffering. But here he is. He's saying, I'm going to suffer these things, and it's coming. Now, Peter, boy, Peter took that news real well, didn't he? Verse 32, you could almost see it in your head. Peter throws his arm around Jesus and he says, dude, you got to step aside here. Come here. And I can almost see Peter just kind of pulling Jesus in a little closer and saying, what are you thinking? What are you doing? We know you're powerful. We know you're God. If you moved up just a few verses earlier, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say the prophets. Peter had just said earlier you're the Christ. So Peter pulled Jesus aside. He's like, we know you're powerful. We know you're God. We know all the power you have. We've seen it. 
What are you doing talking about this? You're at the height of your popularity, Jesus. Why in the world are you now talking about all the things you have to suffer? See, at that point, Jesus has to course correct what the disciples were thinking about him. Just as Jesus, through his word, has to course correct us sometimes. Because if you go up to verse uh, 29, that's when Peter says, look, you're the Christ. Notice verse 30, and he strictly charged them, tell no one right now about me. Why in the world would you think Jesus to the 12 so far at this point goes, hey guys, you're right, Peter, I'm the Messiah, I'm the anointed one, I'm the Christ, but you huckleberries, don't go tell anybody else about that right now. Why is he doing that? You know why? Because their definition of who Jesus is as that Christ is a little bit off. Because at that point, they thought, here you go. We're going to get the Romans out. You're going to build the Jewish kingdom again. You're going to rule and reign from the throne of David. They viewed him as a political Messiah. And Jesus says, verse 31, I'm not that kind of a guy. Just as a lot of people today go, hey, Jesus, you're a political Messiah. You're going to build a great nation. We're worshiping you because you're this nation-building king. Guess what? He's not that kind of a guy. He's a kingdom-building person, but it's his kingdom he's building, not one nation. Because the kingdom Jesus builds makes up of people of all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all races, all people all around our world that come to know Christ as their Savior. They're in his kingdom. That's why the Bible says we weep with those who weep. That right now for us, we can feel for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine going through what they're going through. Why? Because we're a family. We're in this kingdom that Jesus is building, not just one nation. And so Christ says, Peter, you're way off, buddy. And did you notice what he did? Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples... Now, it's interesting, in Luke's account, Luke doesn't write that in, but Mark puts that in, and Mark's the only one that says, Jesus looked at the whole bunch of them, because all of them are thinking what Peter said out loud, just Peter just said it out loud. Turning aside, he's seen his disciples, he rebuked Peter, and he said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, a disciple of Christ, he doesn't get in the way of Jesus. Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm on a mission. And, and he's not saying Peter's possessed by Satan right now, but he's saying, Peter, you're not thinking like I am. You're thinking like Satan. You're having satanic thoughts, not thoughts of God. Because disciples of Christ, they don't get in the way of Jesus and his mission. See, if you're not thinking like God, you're thinking like Satan. If you're not following Christ, you're following Satan. You're not in the middle ground kingdom. You're either with Jesus or you oppose Jesus. And right now he's saying, Peter, you're opposing me. You're standing in my way from my mission to go to the cross. But here's the good news. When you're a disciple of Jesus and you line yourself up with Christ and you say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to submit to you and I'm going to follow you. The good news about that is this. You get to be a part of one of the greatest building campaigns known to man. 
You get to be a part of seeing men and women, boys and girls and teenagers becoming faithful followers of Christ all around our world. Because no longer now do you oppose a God who wants to redeem all people, but now you're walking with him in that mission. So first, a disciple of Christ doesn't get in the way of Jesus. Second, a, a disciple of Christ gives up their life in order to gain life. Right? So a disciple doesn't get in the way, but then he gives up life in order to gain life. Now notice what Christ says here. He says, all right, guys, you want to follow me. Here's what it means. And calling to him with his disciples, verse 34, he said to them, if anyone, all right, and I always love that, if anyone, anybody, anywhere, no matter what you've done, no matter your upbringing, if anyone would come after me, all right, here's the conditions. You want to be a disciple. Here we go. You're not going to stand in my way, but you're going to give up your life in order to gain life. He says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. All right, three things that you've got to look at in your life to say, as a disciple of Jesus, is this me? He says, first, you've got to deny yourself. Now, that doesn't mean deny yourself of things. All right? So he's not saying, all right, you want to follow me? Deny yourself of Dr. Peppers. All right? For some of you, I don't know if that would be a deal breaker, quite honestly. Deny yourself of brisket. All right? Deny yourself of watching the Texans. Not real hard right now. Okay, we got that one. All right? When he says deny himself, he's saying the idol of you has to die. It all being about you has to die. You have to deny you. You come second to me. You've seen the bumper sticker, you've heard of it, where Jesus is my co-pilot, right? He's nobody's co-pilot. He's the pilot. If you think he's the co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat, right? You switch that. Following Jesus means I follow him. It's not an equal partnership where you negotiate this stuff out. No, no. You follow him because you have died to you. Second, he says, take up his cross. Right? Now, when he said that to them, that's weird, right? That's weird in that context because to say to Jewish people at this time, take up your cross, all they know of the cross is an instrument of execution. Criminals were crucified. Right? We've taken the cross and we've made it jewelry. Right? We, we wear crosses on our necks. We put crosses up in our homes. We've made the cross an uh, ornament that we look at and we fancy over and we celebrate. Now, now, hear me on this. I'm not telling you to take your cross off your neck. I'm not telling you to take your cross down in your home. I will tell you if you put your wise men out at the manger scene, you need to move those guys, all right? I'll, I'll tell you that. Like you, you just move them on off. But I'm not telling you to take your cross off. I'm not telling you to take your, your you know, cross off the wall in your home. I'm just saying you've got to understand this. In that context, it's not jewelry to them. It would be like you in this context wearing an electric chair around your neck. All right? That's what it would be like. You hang an electric chair as an ornament in your home and saying, all right, there you go. Because to them, all they know of it is an instrument of execution. A famous Roman lawyer and philosopher Cicero 
describe crucifixion as the most horrific way for someone to die. And that's what it meant. See, when Jesus says, take up your cross, it's not the illness in which you bear. Your cross is not that nosy relative that you don't like. Your cross is not your hard marriage. Your cross you bear is not your boss at work that you don't like. The cross you bear as a Christian is this. I give up everything and I surrender it all to Jesus even if it's my own life that he calls for me to do. That's the cross. That's what it means. I give him everything. I lay it all down. Luke puts in this uh, verse in his gospel the word daily. Right? So I do this daily because as a believer in Jesus, that's the call. Daily we deny ourselves. Daily we take up our cross and we say, whatever the cost of following Jesus, I'm willing to pay. But let me give you the third thing. So he says, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me. That's what Jesus says. All right? It's not you cut your own path. It's not you go your own way and you ask God to bless you. No. As a believer in Jesus, God, where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to work? Who do you want me to marry? What college do you want me to go to? What career do you want me to have? Lord, as we sing it sometimes here, Lord, where you go, I'll follow. That's where, wherever you lead, wherever you take me, I'm following you because a believer in Jesus Christ gives up his life in order to gain life. But notice the third thing about a believer in Christ, the disciple. One, he doesn't stand in the way of Jesus. He's on mission with him, not opposing him. He gives up life in order to gain it. But notice number three, he knows what his soul's worth. A believer in Christ knows what his soul's worth. Because Jesus is going to ask them two questions that you need to answer that honestly ought to haunt your soul. Because he says right here, what's your soul worth? What good is a man if he gains the whole world, yet he forfeits his own soul? And those verses right there, when I was 14 years old, those are the verses that God gripped in my heart that he used to convict me of my sin and for me to become a believer in Jesus Christ. What good is it if you sell out your soul to gain the whole world and not follow Christ? You know, um, I don't know if you, if you watched professional wrestling growing up like I did. And if you did, you know what? Safe space. It's okay. All right? If you did, don't. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because some of you wouldn't raise it. And then you'd be lying in church, right? But if you did, it's okay. Safe space. But here's a picture of a, a, a wrestler that, um, anybody remember who that was? Okay, you don't want to say it out loud either. All right, I got you. Late 80s. This is one of the most famous villains in wrestling history. This was the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Now, the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, he played a bad guy. And what he would do, his character was, I got all the money I could ever need. And so they would shoot vignettes off-site, and he would, he would go to a restaurant. You know, he'd pay the owner and clear out the restaurant so he could eat at this fancy restaurant all by himself. Right? He'd go to the pool, and uh, community pool, and he'd pay the owner of the pool to clear everybody out of the pool so he could swim by himself. Like, he was just showing, man, I got all the money. I can do whatever I want to do. He would pay wrestlers sometimes to, to beat up his opponent, 
maybe on the way to the ring in their wrestling match, or maybe in the locker room, he'd pay off another wrestler to beat them up so they would come to the ring injured and he'd win the match easily, right? Yeah, he was a bad guy. Some of you looking at me like, gosh, that's horrible, right? It's wrestling, easy. But he would say this in interviews, and he was dead on right, I think, because I've always argued this. If you want to learn culture, you watch wrestling because they get it right. But here's what he'd say. Here's what he'd say every time he'd in an interview. He'd say, you know what? Everybody has a price. Everybody has a price. I can do and get somebody to do, you know, somebody to do anything for the right amount of money. Everybody has a price. What's your soul worth? What's the price of your soul? What's the carrot Satan's dangling right now for you? And he says, hey, you know what? Just come over here. You, you don't need to get that serious about following that Jesus guy. It, it, just come over here. Because, see, you understand this. Satan doesn't always tempt us with bad things. Satan tempts us with good things that will often take our eyes off the best thing, that's Jesus. So what's the good thing that he's tempting you with today? Ah, you know what? Sign your kid up for that travel baseball team. Sign your kid up for that traveling, you know, basketball team. Hey, church isn't that important, is it? Hey, they, they can miss. Hey, it's fine. You know, here's that promotion at work you've always wanted. Man, it's well, look at that 401k is going to grow. That, that salary is going to grow. That, that's going to be good for you. Sure, you might travel a little more and miss more family time and, and miss them. Somebody, oh, don't worry about it. Like, it's, that's good. Well, what's that? What's that carrot he's dangling? It's not a bad thing. It could be a good thing. But it's going to take your eyes off the best thing, which is Jesus. Because Christ asked them, in verse 36, that question. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? Christ says in verse 38, whoever's ashamed of me, of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him I will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. Now when Christ says that, he's not saying if you have a lapse of courage. He's not saying, you know, there, there's times where, where I, and I've fallen guilty of that. I'm, I need to share my faith with someone. The Holy Spirit's prompting me to share my faith with someone, and I just chicken out. I mean, I just, we've all been there. We've all done that. He's not talking about lapses of courage. Verse 38, he says, if you oppose me and you're ashamed of me now, as a disciple, then I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come. And that means if the constant thought pattern of your mind and the constant thought pattern of your heart and your life and the actions don't match up with following me, then I don't know you. You can say you know me, but I don't know you at the end of the day is what Jesus says. If you're one that gets in my way instead of walking with me, if you're one who's not giving me everything of your life like I require, then, then I don't know you. 
you're not a follower of me, is what he gets at in verse 38. If you're ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed of you when I come in my glory. Yeah, I think what the disciples learned that hopefully you'll learn is simply this. To be a follower of Jesus is to learn this simple principle. Losers are keepers. Losers are keepers. Now, I know that doesn't make any sense in our culture because you think, well, if I submit, I lose. No, no. When you submit to Christ, you win. When you lose for Christ, you win. When you give up for Christ, you win. Because you notice what he said in verse 35? For whoever saves his own life, he's going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, he'll save it. Losers are keepers. If you say, Jesus, I'm going to lose my life for you. I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to follow you with the passion. You're my one and only. I'm going after and I'm walking with you. And whatever you call, whatever you say, I'm going to go do. You lose that way with Jesus, you keep life. If you want to say, Jesus, I want to admire you from afar. I I don't want to get too close. I don't want to get too serious about this. I want to just stay comfortable. I want to do everything I can to save my own life. You're going to lose it. That's what he says. As we close this morning, I want to share a story that I uh, ran across several years ago, and and God reminded me of this week as I was preparing the message. And, And the title of the article is, A Powerful Witness in the funeral of Turkish martyrs. And um, let me summarize the, the article for you. But on Wednesday, April 18, 2007, in a, a country of Turkey made up of almost 70 million Muslims, uh, three Christian men were killed. Uh, one was a German man and two were Turkish men. Uh, they were arrested, they were bound, they were tortured, they were repeatedly stabbed to death. Uh, in a printing press in which they were printing and distributing uh, Christian Bibles out of. These men were betrayed by five men that claimed to be believers in Jesus Christ who had infiltrated the group and turned those three men into the Muslim authorities. What appeared to be a victory, the article says, for the enemy resulted in one of the most open declarations of the gospel in public since the Apostle Paul. A week after their brutal death, 500 Christians from around Turkey gathered publicly at this funeral of these three men. And these 500 knew the cost of coming out in public and saying that they also were believers in Jesus Christ, but they believed it was important to show up uh, for the funeral of these three men. The police force that day was heavy. Uh, There was Muslim rioters or protesters all around. And the media coverage was wide. There was television cameras everywhere. During the funeral, 10 elected Christian Turkish leaders began to openly proclaim the gospel in front of the television cameras, the article says. Each of those men began to share about what Jesus has done on the cross and the forgiveness that he has to offer. After those 10 men stopped, and that's phenomenal enough to be able to go out and do that publicly on TV in Turkey at that time, the wife of one of those men stood up, and she came to the platform, and she took the microphone, and there in front of the television cameras, she spoke and said, I quote, I forgive the men who tortured 
and killed my precious husband and the father of my children. She went on to say, I know my husband was praying for you even while being tortured. She said, I love my husband very, very much, but I love my Jesus even more. And that's how I can face tomorrow. You know, as she finished, the crowd in their language began to chant the name of those three men. And as they were chanting the name, they said, well done, well done. And I think when those three men came before Christ in heaven, he said their names and he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you know what our lives ought to be about? Simply doing all that we need to do to love and to lead all people to a new life with Christ, no matter that cost. And so today I'm going to ask you, what is God calling you to do that you need to say yes to? I mean, maybe for some of you, it's to say, yes, I need to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I need to be a disciple. I, I'm not saved. I don't have my sin forgiven. If I died right now, I don't know if I'd be in heaven for all of eternity. Today, maybe God's calling you to say yes to that. Maybe for some of you, you've not been baptized as a believer in Jesus. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is that public declaration. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm going to go public with my faith in Christ, and, and I want to be baptized as a believer. And maybe today, that's you. You need to say yes to that. You've said yes to salvation, but you've not said yes to take that, uh, that, that salvation public in baptism. Maybe there's something else he's calling you to do today where you need to just simply say yes. You are calling me into this. You're calling me to do this. You're calling me to invite a friend to church, share the gospel with someone, serve in a ministry, be a giver. Whatever he's calling you to do, you need to say yes to. Because here's the thing. Losers are keepers. Those who lose their lives for Jesus and say, Jesus, you have my yes on the table. No matter what it is, I'm following you are the ones who keep their lives. Those that try to keep their lives and keep Jesus at a distance, and I don't really want to follow you, there's the ones who lose their lives. So this morning, does he have your life? Have you said, Jesus, take my life and let it be, Lord, consecrated unto thee? Because losers are keepers. Let's pray together. Father.